Satan. This is Mark 4, 35 through 41. And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, babe. That's my wife, Melissa Martin. Gosh, that was so short, I feel like I just should be standing back here for another 10 or 15 minutes while you read the rest of the passage. We've been reading such long passages uh, so far during the series. Well, when we first started the Gospel of Mark, we, uh, we learned that it was persecuted uh, Christians in Rome who would have likely been the first to actually read this account. And uh, they would have been consoled at the same time. They would have been consoled by this eyewitness report that they have been receiving about the life and ministry of Christ. And they would have no doubt been, you know, encouraged as they were reminded of Christ's miracles, uh, about all his words of conviction, his words of comfort, and eventually his suffering on the cross that would have given them hope that their faithfulness through their suffering was not in vain. And they would have they would have also read the story that we just heard. They would have also read the story we just heard of Jesus stilling the storm, um, which would have challenged their own fear and would have called them to keep the faith that they were attempting to live out when there was nothing in their lives but fear of persecution and death all around them, surrounding them uh, at any given moment during all minutes of the day. And what this does for us, I think, is this poses a question for us today which is this, how does God grow your faith? How does God do that? Uh, many times what we find, especially as we're going through this particular gospel and as we read this story today, what we find is that he grows it through allowing us to endure fearful circumstances. Because when our fear is exposed, when it becomes exposed, when it's on the table, when it's there it is, I'm afraid of this, um, our faith has room to finally become something. And so what we'll look at today is that Jesus doesn't just let his followers remain bystanders and observers. He doesn't do that. You know, he's not interested in being just a, a good guy to network with, right? Or, 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 or being a, a go-to, right? When something needs to get done that you can't all get done on your own. Jesus went to the cross this was all leading to the cross. Jesus was on a journey to the cross where his heart stopped beating for your sins so that your heart could start beating for him. Why? Well, so that you might know him, so that you might love him, so that you might treasure him, so that you might behold him and grow in holiness like him. And this is why. Jesus doesn't keep his followers, you and I, perpetually on the sidelines or in the safe places of life. He just doesn't 
have a habit of doing that. And this is where our fear comes in. And this is what we find. We find that in the Christian life, fear and faith tend to exist side by side. Because what fear does is it has a habit of of confronting our faith. It has a habit of testing our faith. It has a habit of revealing our faith. But it exists side by side. I remember uh, we used to go to this fair called the Orange County Fair every summer when we lived in California. And man, I remember the last year we were there, they had these, uh, they had like these high wires that would just take you across the, in, the entire fair. And you would sit in these little bucket seats. It was kind of like, you know, at a ski lodge. And you would just get up and it would go up about 50 feet and they would, they would float across the fair and you'd look down and you'd, yay, you know, and you'd see the whole thing. And, um, and I remember I'm just standing in line. It was at the end of the night, right? We wanted to get back to the parking lot. We were parked. And we just, you know, we're just absentmindedly just standing in line. We're going to hop into the, you know, the, the, you know, the, uh, the death chairs, the, whatever they were called. And uh, so we get in this thing, right? And, I just, and I'm just literally not thinking. And I sit down. I'm next to Melissa. And I, I think our daughter is, on the, you know, next to us. And this thing, like, starts going up. And I literally just froze. And the thing kind of wobbled. And I'm looking down, and I just keep thinking, like, what if our weight gets off balance, and we go like that, and we just end up falling and tumbling down? And I was scared to death. I mean, I was literally, like, I'm literally, like, squeezing my wife's leg. Like, and she goes, you're, she goes, you are legitimately afraid right now, aren't you, idiot? You know, like, that's what I thought she was going <laughs> to, that's what I thought she was going to say. But here's the thing. So, like, in the history of the Orange County Fair, like, not, there had been no one, there had been not one accident. There had been no fatalities. Like, these things were, like, foolproof. I'm thinking, like, yeah, there's a first time for everything, right? <laughs> but I was so scared, even though everybody, I could see everybody just, you know, get, you know decline, getting off these, these death traps and everybody's okay. And, uh, but there was a mixture of the two things. I knew I was going to get to the other side, but yet I was afraid. And then in our own lives, in our spiritual lives, God, he, he does that to us. He casts us into fearful circumstances to display his power over them so that we're moved into a greater fear of him and faith in him. That's what he tends to do. Now, as we get into verse 35, this is what we see as Melissa just read the text for us. Man, it's been a long day of preaching. It's been a long day for Jesus and his disciples. So at evening, Jesus says, boys, let's stay in the boat and push off to the other side. He says, now... What you have to know about the Sea of Galilee is that it had a reputation for sort of fe- having, uh, displaying fierce and erratic storms. So out of nowhere, a storm could just erupt on the Sea of Galilee. But most of the time, these storms occurred during the morning or in the middle of the day. So the disciples, as they were pushing off in the boat with Jesus, they had no reason to think that this would be anything other than a routine nighttime boat ride across the water, you know, maybe a, maybe a little downtime, right, after a long day of ministry, maybe some time to go on Facebook, maybe some time to answer some emails, maybe some time to check a little ESPN, uh, or, if you're, uh, or if you're Casey Cook, maybe go on Pinterest, you know, it just depends where you're at and what you like to do. Brother, I'm looking at you right now, and I love you, you know, I, you know I mean that. But when Jesus says, let us go to the disciples, let's not miss that. Let's not even miss that phrase. He said, let us go to the other side. When he says that, two things are happening, and they're the two things that are always happening to those who follow Jesus. The first one is this. Their future is unknown to everyone but Jesus as they, as they 
take off across the sea for, for the stormy journey. And two, Jesus is with them because Jesus said, let us go, not you go. So there's two things always happening when God calls us to follow him. Number one, we don't know the future. But number two, we know that he is in control of the future and that he is with us. And that's a helpful reminder to us when we are trying to obey the Lord without knowing where it all ends. Which, by the way, is just another word for life, right? I mean, think about Abraham. At some point, Jesus said, Abraham, pack your bags and go. He didn't tell him where. What about, what about when God went to Moses and said, here's the thing, I, I, got, I got some things I want you to do over the next like 80 years. Moses didn't know where all of it was going to take him. What about when God called Ruth, this widowed woman, to travel back to a foreign land so that God could end up doing some things in her life that were going to cause a great amount of fear and call her to, to, to question even her own faith. In that, Jesus doesn't send us anywhere, though, that dislodges us from his presence. But at the same time, he doesn't always reveal the future either, and for good reason, too. I mean, you've got to only imagine what these brothers would have said if they would have known what was coming, right? If they would have known what was on the horizon for this night journey across the Sea of Galilee. They might have argued with Jesus that they should wait until morning, Right? It's not going to be a safe time for us to go. Maybe they would have wanted to uh, you know, go to Cabela's or Bass Pro and get some life preservers, knowing what was coming, right? But at his instruction, they simply sailed into the night of the unknown, if you'll let me be a little poetic right there for you. It says in 37, then a great windstorm arose, and the waves now were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling you know, in California, I'm talking a lot about California today, but they, they uh, usually in the fall, they, they have these winds called the Santa Anas. Maybe you guys have heard of those. And these winds are just, like, they're not garden variety winds. They're just nuts, right? These are just, these are just like, they're, they're just winds that destroy everything that they come in contact, you know, trees and houses, um, you know, telephone poles are getting knocked down, and then, you know, the wires, and then there's, there's car accidents because you, it's hard to drive in it, and then all these, all these fires begin, and all the, all the hill, all the California hills, it's just a devastating and destroying, it's like wind you can almost see and touch, you know, um, it's, it's that, it, it looks that solid and, and substantive, you know, so what happens is here with these fellas is a, a violent windstorm breaks, and it breaks so suddenly that the waves are just crashing into the boat and they're filling the boat with water before they have time to do anything about it. Now, again, what these disciples are going to find is that whenever they get Jesus around a boat, bad things seem to start happening, right? We're going to get to Mark 6 in a few weeks and see how Jesus walks on the water to them in a storm and they're scared to death because they think it's a ghost, Right? So just as a, as a side point, I mean, at some point, like if I'm these guys, like, I, like I'm just going to stay away from boats when Jesus is around. Right? Like I'm in a helicopter across, across the sea at this point. But here's the bigger point is have you, have you ever experienced something like this? Have you ever experienced something sudden like this in your life? You have. You don't even have to raise your hand. And if I was going to ask you to raise your hand, none of you would anyway. But here's the thing, we've all experienced an out-of-nowhere moment where a decision needs to be made with no time 
to think. I mean, I mean, most of us were around, were old enough to remember 9-11. I was actually on a flight from Texas to California on 9-11. Um, I get off the flight. I drive home. It's one of those flights where it's still like 6 a.m. because the flight was like at 3 a.m. And, um, and I, I, I get into the house. I lay down. I get a little bit of sleep. At some point, I hear my wife downstairs go, something's wrong. Something happened. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean something's wrong? She goes, like, all the, all the news channels, like, there was something bad happened in New York. And, and you guys remember that. You know, the, the planes fly into the tower. No, nobody knows. It's sudden. Nobody has any time to think. It just produces chaos. I remember a time where I, I was at home. This was when I was a teenager. And I remember I heard my little brother, my little sister, and my mom they started screaming downstairs, and I was upstairs, and I ran downstairs. And my dad was, was on the couch, and he was passed out, and he was having a seizure, and he'd never had a seizure before. And, and my, my brother's standing back, and he's, he's crying, and my sister's over in the corner, and my, my mom's on the phone calling 911, and there I am, you know? And I, I didn't know what to do, you know? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not Zach Watson. I'm not a doctor, you know? Um, so I, I didn't know what to do, so I, I, all I could know to do was to go, and, and he kept trying to get up, but he was shaking, and I, I finally had to push him down and hold him down until the ambulance got there. I, I didn't know what to do. It was sudden. Something broke. It was like waves crashing. It was like a storm descending, and we all experience that in our life, and what the disciples are beginning to see, which is what we all have seen if we've lived even a little bit of life is that life with Jesus is no guarantee of, of any kind of physical safety, which is fine as long as you're with Jesus, right? I mean, that's what we would think when we're looking at the disciples here in the boat with Jesus. But the problem is that the disciples are a lot like us in that they let their circumstances change what they believe about Jesus. They were about to get a lesson in self-discovery about who Jesus was and who they were when they were with him. And we are constantly on that road, aren't we? We are constantly on that road of self-discovery about who we are as people who are allegedly with Jesus. Because whichever way you react when a storm breaks in your life shows who you think God is and who you think you are as the result. So if we believe that all things, like Romans 8 tells us, that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose, then our faith, in effect, will be greater than our fear when fearful circumstances arise. We will believe what is true about God over the conspiracies of our imaginations. But, but look how the disciples reacted here in 38. He says, but he was in the stern, it says about Jesus, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I mean, that sounds a little passive aggressive right there, talking to the creator of heaven and earth. So what's happening is the boat starts filling with water and Jesus is sleeping, sleeping calmly on a cushion in the stern, in the front of the boat, no doubt exhausted again from a long Day. You know what this shows us too? This shows us the human side of Jesus. He needed rest. He rested. It had been a long day. But his mere presence in the boat with the disciples, totally inadequate. 
wasn't enough for the disciples. They needed him to do something. Oh, man. That's us, isn't it? If God doesn't fix, well, he must be failing. What they didn't know and what we don't know is that God is fixing our faith in those moments. He's fixing something far greater than our circumstances. So Jesus is there in the boat, but he's not awake. So the disciples conclude that he must be unaware, like they would be if they were asleep. And so it calls us to question how often we attribute our inabilities to God. I can't, so it must mean that he can't either. Now the fact that the disciples go to him, well, that's a good thing, okay? They know they're in trouble, uh, so they turn to Jesus. Sometimes we don't do that. Sometimes we feel guilty for turning to Jesus when everything goes sideways, thinking that a better option might present itself, right? But the disciples don't do that. In fact, when we go to Psalm 32, we read about David. This is what David said about going to Jesus when everything has erupted in your life. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you. He's talking to God at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Then he says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So David knows that when everything is haywire, he goes to God. Remember Jonah? Remember the story of Jonah? Jonah prayed when he was in the belly of the whale. He prayed that prayer, right? I mean, this is a brother that's in trouble. Like, man, I've experienced some things. Not that. And he says this, he says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. He said, the deep surrounded me. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And he concludes his prayer by saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. There's a redirection that takes place when we find ourselves at the bottom And again, what happens is sometimes we misread the character of Jesus, right? We misread the character of Jesus if we think he's standing back there saying, oh, now you come to me, right? Because we do that instead of his delight that now you've come to him, right? There's a difference between those two things. But we think the former, we think we need to earn his help because we get ourselves into a situation where we actually need to ask him for it as if we didn't before that. The disciples were right. They were right in waking Jesus up. But it's the way that they accuse Jesus that reveals three problems in their thinking. Number one, that he was oblivious. That he just somehow didn't know what was going on. Two, that he didn't care. Like Maybe he did know what was going on, but just wasn't really that interested in what was happening to them in the moment with the boat filling up with water. And number three, that they knew their fate. They thought they knew what was going to happen. They thought they knew what the future held for them. I mean, how well does this describe you when you find yourself in a place of unplanned peril? You think Jesus is oblivious. And because he's oblivious, he doesn't care. And because he doesn't care now, it means you know what the outcome of the situation will be. You're so sure that you know. Well, here's the thing. Jesus was there. Remember who Jesus was? This is the one who created oceans and wind. 
Did they really think a windstorm was going to obstruct his mission? But that's us. Just because we think Jesus is sleeping doesn't mean his control over all things has diminished. I mean, do you think that your opinion of Jesus somehow derails his sovereignty over all things? It's foolish, but we do that. But look how he responds in verse 39, and he awoke and rebuked the wind. Doesn't even, doesn't even deal with them. Deals with the storm. He rebukes the wind and said to the sea, peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And then verse 40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now this is an, this is an interesting, this is an interesting uh, uh, response from Jesus. And I think it's interesting for these three reasons. First, because he rebukes the wind the same way, if you go back to Mark 125, that he rebukes the demon. When he says, be silent and come out of him. Secondly, he stills the sea, or, or another word for still is he muzzles the sea. He stops it. He muzzles the sea. And what that does, it recalls Psalm 46 to us when he says, be still and know that I'm, I'm God and that I will be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. What this shows us, what this reminds us of is that Jesus has command over chaos and disorder. He rebukes, he stills, and all things he rebukes and stills are forced to comply and give testimony to his power and glory. And someday, Jesus will be exalted among all the nations in the earth. Three, what's interesting about this, is that Jesus reacts to their reaction. That's interesting, the way he reacts. He says, why so afraid? He says, still no faith. Still no faith. You've seen my power over disease and demons, and somehow you thought this was how it was all going to end? Here's what I find most curious in light of this. Jesus could have responded to the storm in a number of different ways, couldn't he have? Right? I mean, he could have gotten some buckets and said, all right, boys, let's get to work and help them start removing the water out of the boat. Right? But what he does is he does something the disciples were absolutely not expecting, which challenged their fear and called on their faith in who he was. Jesus stilled the storm. And look at the reaction in 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea Obey him. Now, we're not told what they expected Jesus to do when they woke him up, but it wasn't this. It wasn't this. Because a new fear arose in them. Their fear of the windstorm was replaced with a new fear, a fear of the person of Jesus. These were men who were confronted with who Jesus was really in what was to be the most fearful of circumstances. Remember, these, most of these brothers were fishermen. They understood what the effects of a storm could have on a boat and on people who were in that boat. But seeing Jesus have absolute command and control over nature, you know what was really happening for these brothers? It was to come face to face with his holiness. Wasn't it? 
It was unlike anything else. It was completely alien. It was beholding something that could only exist in someone who had complete control over his creation. Interestingly enough, he doesn't reverse their fear. He replaces their fear with a greater fear of himself. So interesting how Jesus responds to this situation. It calls us to ask the same question. What are some ways that confronts both our fear of life and our faith in Christ? I have two questions I think this text asks of us, and then a summary statement for us to think about and, and pray through and maybe repent of if necessary. The first question is this. Do you know the Jesus that you need? Do you know the Jesus you need? We want Jesus to wake up and fix the problem. That's what we want. Why are you sleeping, Jesus? There ain't anybody in here that hasn't asked that question in their own vernacular. Why are you sleeping, Jesus? Because our favorite Jesus, our favorite version of Jesus is Jesus the skilled handyman, right? That's the Jesus we like. He comes in, he fixes it. But what happens when he wants to fix something different than we want fixed? What happens? It should call us to ask the two questions he asked his disciples, which were, why so afraid, and have you still no faith? Because it's in these moments that we begin to know the Jesus that we actually need. It's not that the disciples didn't need Jesus, but they didn't know the Jesus to the degree that they needed him. There's a difference between those two things. So we know that Jesus is not sleeping, right? We can intellectually assent to that. But if we know he's not sleeping, then we also know that he's never lost control. And we should also realize that we have no control in those realizations. You know, when I need help from my bank, which is probably all the time, I don't know, um, I call and... Eight hours later, I get a friendly representative that comes on the line. And what they do is they, they help me, right? They help me. They help me achieve an objective that I have for calling them. But here's what they're not responsible for, unfortunately. They're not responsible for putting money in my account, okay? For someone to invest in my account, and I'll give you guys all a number if you're interested in that in a minute, it would generally require a relationship. I'm joking about that last part, all right? But it would require a relationship, right? Here's my question. Do you use Jesus to achieve an objective? Is that what Jesus is for you? Even just on a Sunday morning? Do you use him to achieve an objective? Or, or is he actually someone who has become the object of your life? Because that's what he's dealing with here with the disciples. Because the former, using Jesus as a means to an end, is idolatry. Because you just want him to get what you want, what you feel is going to give you most comfort and most enjoyment. But the latter, Jesus becoming the object of your life, that's identity. That's not idolatry, that's identity. The disciples acted like they didn't know Jesus when they asked him why he didn't care while they were sinking. And what an absurd thing to ask. I mean, you read this, and if you're like me, you just go, I would have never, no way. I would have never asked that. I probably would have just asked it sooner. 
They knew where Jesus was. But they forgot who Jesus was. They knew where he was. But they didn't remember who he was. Charles Spurgeon said, the the old 19th century theologian, he said, faith is the road, but communion with Jesus is the well from which the pilgrim drinks. So there was some faith there. They knew Jesus was there, but they had forgotten who he was. Their response to him, it didn't represent the relationship that they had with him, but they had a relationship that was growing with him. To know Jesus is to know we have everything we need in him because we know our storms, they're both ordained and ordered by him. And that's what the disciples couldn't grasp in this moment. So do you know the Jesus that you need? And two, how might Jesus be stilling you? How might he be stilling you? What in your life is Jesus showing you that he has control over? What is it? The wind and sea became calm. But interestingly enough, it didn't calm the disciples. It unnerved the disciples. You know what God does for us? God stirs us to still us. That's what he does. You know, on my day off, I hate admitting this, but I'm just going to throw it out there. I love taking a nap. I love taking a nap. When I get about 30 minutes in, I need to wake myself up or I'm going to ruin the more important rest that I need to get that night. That's what happens. So either I get myself up or I'll be tossing and turning half the night. But the latter is is more important, right? So I need to stir myself up so that I can steal myself later. What this is pointing to for us is that having an unsettling awe for God, that's how we become most stilled. The disciples were troubled when that windstorm hit. But Jesus used the storm to still their hearts so that they would know that he was God and exalt him accordingly. The result was the seeds planted for greater awe and reverence, wonder and sobriety about the person they were with that they called teacher because he wasn't just merely a teacher. What is Jesus stirring in your life so that you might be stilled enough to know that he is Lord over your life? What is it? You going to take stock of that this morning? You going to look into those places that are really uncomfortable to look? Because there is things stirring, but are they stilling you? So do you know the Jesus you need? That's the first question you want to ask. The second is, how might Jesus be stilling you? And here's the final comment to close, and it's this. We need to locate our fears to find our faith. Locate your fears to find your your faith. The problem is not that we fear. The problem is what kind of fear is controlling us. Believing Jesus is not the absence of fear. It's fearing the right thing is what it is. Maybe right now, your greatest fear is not having enough money. I mean, like everybody's hand is going to go, again, if you ever raise your hand, everybody's hand would go up if I asked that question. But maybe right now, that's your greatest fear. 
not having enough money. But what that tells us then is that our faith now has been placed in financial security. Maybe your greatest fear is that your health is in decline. It's a real fear, right? But if that fear controls you, it means that your faith is being put in being well. Your faith is placed in your health being what's going to give you ultimate happiness. Maybe your fear is that your kids may never know Christ. If that fear is controlling you, it means that you've placed all of your faith in your ability as a parent. And I would say in abilities that you actually don't have to change your kids because you're not God. Maybe you fear that you might lose your job. And if that fear is controlling you, it means that you've placed all your faith and your skills and your talents and your abilities. Maybe if you're younger, you have a great fear that your friends might abandon you or they might betray you. And if that fear controls you, it means that you've put all of your faith in relationships. It's your fear of those things coming undone that point to the faith that you've put in them. And it's hard because we all fear those things, don't we? I fear those things. But when I fear Christ and I rest my faith in Him, what's happening then is it's now placed on a person who loves me so much that when those other fears materialize, and they're going to, He will not only be with me, but He will use the outcomes of those other fears to build greater realizations of hope in Him and love for Him. That's what happens. Why so afraid, Jesus asked. Have you still no faith? And it just brings us to the cross, doesn't it? It just leads us to the cross because Jesus was leading his disciples in all of this to the cross because on the cross, Jesus would save them from something far greater than a sea, than a stormy sea. On the cross, Jesus would still the sea of sin that crashes against our souls, that wants to sink our souls. There's a greater stilling when we think about Jesus and His work on the cross. And we are constantly cast into fearful circumstances, aren't we? They're unavoidable. But how would we see God work otherwise? How would you how would you know God's love otherwise? How would God steal you otherwise? How would God replace your childlike fears with a childlike faith otherwise? How would He transform your worry into worship? You know, I, I, I can't remember a week that I've been more racked with fear and worry and stress than this past week. I feared the wrong things. It's felt like just a load that has not lifted. Right now, it feels like a load that's not lifted. You guys should know that. I've had trouble remembering who is with me in the boat this week. I'm familiar with these kinds of fears. You are too. 
We are familiar with fear and with faith and how the two confront each other and how the two rub up against each other and how the two stir us. We're like the disciples. We remember he's there, but we forget who he is. We forget the cross, which is the place where perfect love casts out all fear. We forget the love of Christ, but it's there. He's there and he's working by virtue of who he is. He is stirring you to still you. I want to finish with a passage from Psalm 107, if you want to turn with me there. It's a beautiful passage of encouragement for us that find ourselves in the deep end of a storm. Psalm 107. I'm going to start at verse 23. I'm going to read this and I'm going to pray. And my prayer is that this would be an encouragement to us because we are people that God cares about. We are people that God loves deeply. He loves us with a love, with a depth of love that's hard for us to fathom. But it's there. It's there. He's stirring us to still us. Psalm 107:23. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Let's pray. God, we thank you for stirring the deep waters of our life. We thank you for that because we know that at some point you're going to quiet those waters. You're going to still us and we're going to be able to thank you again for your steadfast love and for your wondrous works. And we're going to sing to you in the congregation of the people. We know with you that we have a hope. We know that someday we will feast with you we knew that you will not allow us to go through the fire, to be burned eternally. We know that you have saved us, and we know that you will continue to save us and show yourself to be our God, whose words are perfect and true. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in you. Thank you that we can gather in a place like this and be reminded of it. 
and we can repent of those times and those areas in our life that we refuse to relinquish, that we just want you to fix. Lord, instead, fix our hearts. Fixate our gaze back to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.